0: Do you live in Washington, Wyoming, Alaska, Montana, or Idaho, the whammy states? Are you interested in attending the University of Washington School of Medicine? Our guest today, UW's Associate Dean of Admissions, is going to tell you what top ranked UW is looking for.
1: Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in! Confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome
0: to the 451st episode of Mission Straight Talk. Thanks for tuning in. Are you ready to apply to your dream medical schools? Are you competitive at your target programs? Acceptance Med School Admissions Calculator can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accept.com/medquiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment but tips on how to improve your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, take the quiz at accept.com/medquiz to obtain your free assessment. Our guest today is Dr. Leanna Muskie, UWSOM's Associate Dean for Admissions. Dr. Muskie graduated from UW-SOM in 2000 and received a Native American Center of Excellence certificate for successful completion of the Indian Health Pathway at UW. She did her residency at the Seattle Indian Health Board Clinic through the Swedish Family Medicine Residency Program in Seattle and was chief resident from 2002 to 2003. She has tribal citizenship with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, the so CSKT, in Montana. She worked as a family physician with the CSKT since 2003, and in 2011, became the medical director for CSKT Tribal Health. She's also taught medical students and physician assistant students for SOM for the past 12 years. She assumed the role of associate dean in 2018 after serving as assistant dean for approximately one year. Dr. Muskie, welcome to Admission Straight Talk.
1: Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. I'm delighted to speak with you today. Now, today's podcast, will have some review on the podcast interview we did roughly three years ago, but not a lot. And we're going to link to that interview from the show notes at except.com slash 451. Now, Dr. Muskie, can you give an overview of UW's curriculum, focusing on its more distinctive elements, just as a, as a starter?
1: Yeah, well, um, it's a fairly complex starter. So we had a curriculum revision in 2015, where we really um, embrace the, you know, sort of idea of clinical experiences early and often, um, incorporating that into um, a block style of curriculum taught over three different phases. So we have our first phase, which is our foundations phase, which is mostly the basic sciences incorporated into sort of a clinical uh, experience a way of presenting material. So students get the opportunity to really learn basic science through some traditional lecture format, uh, small group work, but then also are assigned to do um, early clinical experiences with a um, primary care practicum and linking to some mentorship early, as well as learning their clinical skills right at the outset of the uh, start of medical school. So then they're able to sort of take the basic science knowledge and the pathophysiology and apply that to. To patient care and and see it in real in, in, in action in real life so it really helps um, set that foundational knowledge and then that lasts for roughly 18 to now expanding a little bit longer to closer to 24 months because we're starting our, our year earlier actually coming up um, for the entering class of 2022 um, but that lasts for the the first part of medical school and then the second phase is our our clerkship phase which is where folks do the traditional clerkships. US uh, required. Yeah, it's, it's essentially the third year of clerkships, those core kind of clerkships where it's, you know, the foundational family medicine, um, OBGYN, surgery, internal medicine, psychiatry, um, etc. And then the final phase is the explore and focus phase where that's where we do our elective rotations. So there's a little bit more flexibility. Folks are really exploring their career um, choices, doing some some internships, trying to get that experience in the fields that they're interested in. And then they're applying for residency um, throughout uh, that time as well and and getting ready for that experience. Um, Interestingly, we also have um, more longitudinal curriculum that's taught throughout, which is um, some of that, like more teaching the the arts and practice of around um, like definite themes that uh, uh, around, oh, give an so example. Some- like social determinants of health and how those weave throughout. So there are different weeks that are sort of kind of paused in between basic sciences or in between the time uh, for for clerkships where there's a focus more on how does health and healthcare impact populations and specific populations, what does that look like? Why does that exist? And and what are strategies to sort of, to address some of those? So those themes happen throughout the the, um, curriculum as well. So so it's sort of blocked. There's the the sort of a vertical thought to the curriculum, but there's also sort of this horizontal flow through as you're sort of trying to integrate all of the pieces of medicine into, you know, sort of your knowledge as you take that into your eventual specialty and career. Other highlights, I just would say that our, you know, we're a five-state regional medical school. I think we talked about that last time. So We serve five different states. We have six foundation site campuses. And during the time of clerkships, during that second phase of medical school, students have the opportunity to rotate, not just in Seattle, where University of Washington is located, um, where our tertiary care centers, are, tr- level one trauma centers, those sorts of things are located also throughout the region, throughout those Five states where they really have the opportunity to see medicine practice in a variety of different settings in community based settings in rural settings in tribal settings like where I actually practice so a wide range of experiences are available, and that can be done a variety of different ways. So there are tracks and there are specialty programs for rural health. There are specialty programs for folks who maybe want to stay more in one location and learn in a longitudinal integrated clerkship type fashion, as opposed to the traditional kind of block clerkship. So there's some variety in terms of how our stu- students learn, and it's sort of tailored to the needs of, of the student. Additionally, one other thing, there are also pathways. You had mentioned that I have a I participated in a uh, and obtained a certificate in the Indian Health Pathway. Mm-hmm. So, we also have pathways for students to train in uh, if they're interested in some sort of more tradition or more specific uh, population. So for me, I knew I wanted to serve a, a Native American community eventually, which is my home community that I grew up in. And what was afforded to me then was to do the Indian health pathway, which really focused on issues within Indian health, gave me the opportunity to take a little bit of a deeper dive into the issues around that particular population, as well as some clerkship opportunities in the explore and focus phase, where there's some elective clerkships within tribal communities communities, particularly with traditional Indian healers, etc. So we have several pathways that are similarly structured for other populations as well. So there's the Indian Health Pathway, the Hispanic Health Pathway, there's a Black Health Justice Pathway, there is an LGBTQ Pathway, a Leadership Pathway, and a Humanities Pathway, and a Global Health Pathway. So they're all in an underserved pathway just more generally. So there are all sorts of different ways for a student to really Sort of hone in their own interests and tailor their curriculum um, to their own needs. I like to say that no two students who graduate from the University of Washington probably had the same experience. You know, everybody kind of leaves with a similar sort of training, a high level of excellent training in medicine, but with a sort of an individualized flavor to it.
0: You ever go to a play where you follow the characters around and basically everybody has a slightly different, you all see the same play, but you all see a different play at the same time.
1: Yes, Yes. That's sort of what it's like. Go to different rooms, Mm -hmm.
0: different acts. When you talk about longitudinal experience, does that mean you, let's say follow a patient for four years or does it mean again that you, let's say, Focus on Indian Native American health for four years, or or Hispanic health. What is what? Can you can you go into a little more detail on that concept?
1: Sure. So we have a couple of different options that are sort of more longitudinal experiences. They both happen within that clerkship phase, um, the second phase of of training, and so one is a very specific site location. So in the state of Washington, it's for primarily for Washington residents, but not specifically. There is a site in a city called Olympia and students are, who are assigned to that site, they do a longitudinal integrated curriculum clerkship. So they're there for almost the entirety of their clerkship experience. And so they do all of the, the core clerkships, they'll do their surgery, their internal medicine, their OBGYN, their family medicine in the one specific site, one within a group, right? So one day they may be in the family medicine clinic, and then the next day they may be in the, you know, working with the OB and then be on call to catch a baby, you know, sort of that sort of thing to see medicine. So they're getting all of the experience, but it's really sort of how medicine is practiced, right? Like, so it doesn't just happen, you know, surgery all condensed to this amount of time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one option. The other one is called our. Right program, which is rural integrating training experience, a whammy rural integrated training experience. And um, so we have right sites throughout the five. States, And you can go a, a student. So, for instance, I was a Montana whammy, we're called. So we, we uh, use the acronym whammy to include all of our states. And I would have had the opportunity to come to Montana to a site and live in a small town um, and do the same sort of longitudinal experience where I'm I'm stationed there for six months or eight months of my training and I get all of the exposure to all the different core curriculum experiences, but they may not be in a block fashion. So just thought of a little bit more longitudinally.
0: And I'm going to guess that's probably much more what practicing rural medicine is like.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yes. I'm going to guess. It's great because those students really get to be part of the community. Yeah. And like you were saying, they often are able to take care of patients over that long-term while they're there. We also have something called the trust program. So at uh, UW, we're full of alphabet soup. So we have lots of acronyms for lots of things. Um, mm-hmm. So starting with Whammy, right? But we also have something called the trust program, trust scholars, which is an admissions sort of program. So you, you apply to that through the admissions process for most sites. And um, that really is a targeted role in underserved training program or scholars training program and what that does is it introduces a a student to a rural community right right as they're admitted to medical school actually they are assigned to a rural community and they do some pre-matriculation they spend some pre-matriculation time there get to know some folks and then periodically throughout even their first year there they have some opportunity to return to that community and then they do a right typically they do a right experience in their trust community and then they're allowed to also do some of their elective time there if it's available as well. And then, so that really gives them that longitudinal experience. So when you asked if somebody could follow a patient for their four years, there are some trust scholars who have that opportunity. They may meet them when they first arrive. And then over the course of that four years of training, they they get to interact with some of those same patients in that same community. They also do a, um, what's called a RUOP, Another, another acronym. acronym rural underserved opportunity program which is a four-week sort of immersion experience where between our first and second years when you're still in the foundation phase, but we have a a block of time in the summer and you can go out to your rural community trust scholars go to their trust site others choose to go to other rural communities not just trust scholars do grow up but it's really a, a chance to get immersed into a community and there's a requirement to do sort of a community project so really kind of assess the community see where there might be needs and what might be suggested, and sometimes even the projects are enacted um, and implemented um, once the student has been there. So uh, lots of opportunities, lots of just different kinds of programmatic and experiential opportunities to enhance that, you know, curriculum that's that's more basic, but everybody has the opportunity to explore different areas that are of interest to them. Sounds good. Now,
0: I'm going to guess that medical school at UW was somewhat affected by the COVID pandemic. What do you think is going to stick around from those adaptations, both in terms of the program and the admissions process?
1: Yeah, great question. And I think that's something that the faculty continually reassesses. So as we entered, of course, as with all schools, we had to halt sort of in-person classes, in-person clerkships. So there was a time when our students weren't even allowed to, you know, be in the hospitals and, and do what they had to do. So things were, had to, had to change and had to change quickly. So we adapted, we provided some, you know, bridge kind of training opportunities that were more virtual, of course, keeping the health and safety of of everybody involved um, at the forefront. And then over time, as the world, you know, continues to shift and change, we also continue to shift and change. So the interesting thing about UW and WAMI, as I said before, is we're five states, six different institutional campuses. So we're affiliated with six different universities. And you can imagine with that, um, every university and every state has a very different, you know, approach to reacting and responding to the pandemic. So we had to be fairly flexible in terms of how our students were um, being taught and what strategies were employed, whether we're in-person or virtual or some sort of hybrid model. So we have a variety of things going on even today across our campuses. But for the most part, we've returned, you know, so much of our content was transitioned to virtual for the, you know, sort of last year's spring, summer, fall. And so I think where where we're headed is that We're going to try to keep the parts of that that worked really well in terms of there is some value to to delivering some content virtually Mm. and to affording students who are medical students, but they're also, you know, participants in their own lives. So they have other responsibilities and other priorities, things that they need to do. So being able to honor that and, you know, limit time and commuting and exposure to people and public transportation and those sorts of things. So keeping some of the hybrid or some of the virtual teaching, um, especially some that we found that actually works better to do it that way. And then preserving in-person time because we know that that's important too. There is nothing that replaces that, the the personal connections that we make and actually seeing patients and all those. So preserving that time for for those moments that really can't be replaced by virtual learning. So I think as we move ahead, we were just talking about this um, in some faculty discussions yesterday about, what does it look like for the future? So we're finally, you know, for for the folks in the Seattle campus, they're still doing some sort of hybrid model. They're not doing a lot of things in person. In the spring, we're we're finally feel like it's comfortable and the there's enough infrastructure in place to keep folks safe that we'll come back probably full um, in person in the spring and and likely throughout the academic year coming up. So so we're transitioning, it just, um, you know, we're trying to be mindful of that. And it also, the curriculum piece has to catch up, right? So we have to shift back to how do we deliver the content um, back in person and what makes sense, or how do we take, like I said, what we feel worked really well and keep the, some of it, you know, sort of in that virtual space so that it allows for better interaction when, we're, when we are in person. Um, In terms, yeah, and in terms of the admissions process, we, of course, like everyone went to a virtual interview platform last year, we continued it this year, just with the uncertainty of you know, not knowing. We had to make that decision all the way back last, early last spring, and it was still, there was a lot of uncertainty then. Um, as we look forward, what we have come to value around virtual interviews is just some of the barriers that it's decreased for applicants in terms of access and the ability to explore us as a, as a possibility of, a, of an institution. We, we heard so much angst and anxiety from our admissions committee when we entered into virtual interviews last season that they just weren't, couldn't imagine how we were ever going to get to know people in a virtual space, how this was going to work. And at the end of the year, I think people really came to appreciate that there is, um, there is the ability to connect with people via Zoom, which is a platform we use, that you really can get to know folks. And, you know, they appreciated also not having to commute to campus and finding parking and disrupting their day. You know, our, our committee is all volunteers. They are all, many of them are practicing clinicians or faculty members. Um, some of them are retired, some of them, and, and we have students. And we were able to um, have many more students help us because of the virtual nature of our interviews. You know, so it just really enhanced the, the access for people to both from the applicant side and from our committee. And I think we were enhanced by that. There are definitely challenges of technology and there are challenges of, um, really having students get to really feel our community and our campus. So we're trying to be creative and, and looking forward into the spring, hoping that, you know, things will, will be, um, provide us the opportunity to bring folks to campus in a meaningful way so that they do have the opportunity to interact in real person, in real time with uh, with our community is, is our hope. So will we continue to do diver- virtual interviews in the future? It's unclear, uncertain, perhaps some sort of, again, this hybrid like incorporating technology. I just think that the pandemic, if it hasn't taught us anything else, it forced us to you know really adapt to technology and, and integrate it into our, in our, our day to be able to function. And I don't see us returning back to 100%, you know, not virtual, not, we just have learned so much about how to deliver content and reach so many more people and be able to be more accessible. And I think that that's a really important part of, of our work um, is to be accessible and available to, to more, more people. Uh, um, So I see that continuing, just not sure what it exactly looks like yet.
0: Yeah. It's, it's been interesting, you know, during the worst of the lockdown, there's still were silver linings. Yeah, um, right. You know, I don't think we want to go back to lockdown, but no, you know, no way. But um, you know, here in Los Angeles, the skies were blue, which we yeah, don't always right. see. because <laughs> yeah. there was no, nobody was driving anywhere. Yeah. My daughter said she could get to work in twenty minutes. She works in a hospital, um, yeah. which she can't do today. So you know, th- there were there were some silver linings. I don't think again anybody wants to go back to it, but every so often somebody will say, you know, it was so nice. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. But the but the question remains, what of the good can can be preserved, if you <laughs> will, or can be incorporated into a more normal uh, day-to-day life? Yeah. Yeah. Let's turn to medical school admissions. Uh mm-hmm. UW is one of the few medical schools that actually posts its secondary essays. What do you glean from the secondary that you don't from the primary? Or what do you want to glean from the secondary that you don't think, glean from the primary? Um
1: yeah, it's a good question. I, I think you know, for us, we really try to make our process transparent. And that's why we post the questions we yeah, post. I think it's questions. great,
0: by the way. You, yeah. You know, you no. they're, just- they're all going to get posted. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Whether, just we post we post them? Them,
1: whether we post them or somebody else does. Right. Um, so I think what we're really looking for, you know, is to really get to know the person beyond the basics of their demographics and their experiences and their metrics, because that's kind of what comes in the primary application, right, is just some basic information. Uh, We always encourage people reflect wherever you can, tell us your thought process, what it means to you, because that's what we're trying to get at. Who are you at the core? What is your story? Um, And then What we do is we try to take what you tell us from your answers to secondary questions and try to overlay that on what is our mission? Who are we looking for? What who are the people um, who are going to best serve, you know, sort of the mission of our institution in a meaningful way and in perhaps in a unique way, you know, that that hasn't been represented before or that we that you know that we may find value in for a different reason. So our encouragement is always, you know, what to, to be as reflective as possible. Tell us the meaning behind anything that you put into your application because we're really trying to get to know you as a person. For the most part, if you've made it to getting the secondary application, we we stop really looking with big scrutiny at your academics or you know sort of those kind of things and we really do want to know who you are and how will you contribute what will you bring to the table um, what does that mean for our institution and for our communities and for our region because that's what we're here for we're here to you know sort of meet the workforce needs of the region so we're that's who we're looking for so I think that's and that's why we post them so that folks have a really the opportunity to think through that. Um, and you don't have to cram your answer in right before the deadline or something like that. Like it's been posted. So even if we're running behind, which by the way, we were this year. Um, so you're wondering I think why a lot of schools, secondary. Yeah. a
0: lot of schools were,
1: it just was, you know, recovering from, all of the things that happened last year and last season and then just through the summer. And we, like everybody, suffer from, you know, just some staffing issues. And, you know, there were some stuff that went on with the application process itself. So we just, um, yeah, we just found ourselves running behind. And so we're trying to alleviate that anxiety for applicants and let them know. So we try to post that on our social media and, you know, just sort of let folks know that it's 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 us, not you. So don't, you know, don't get too um, worried or upset if you're not here. So we try to communicate frequently in that respect, but, you know, sometimes it's just, it just is how it is and we're right.
0: Right, I, that, I'm sure that was that was very much appreciated by anybody who got the message because they're all very anxious. Yeah,
1: <laughs> trust me, they're
0: very yes, anxious. yes, yes. We know. I'm we sure you know it too. <laughs> now, is there? Do you do any screening before second sending out secondaries? or Are they on it for, uh, automatic for anybody who clicks the UW box? We do do screening. So as you
1: have. Probably are aware we get upwards of seven, eight, last year over 9,000 applications wow. for our 270 seats. And, you know, the majority of those are dedicated to those site specific, those state specific seats. Yeah. Um, so we have to have a way to sort of cull through um, some of the applications. So we do set some criteria in terms of metrics for both our WAMI applicants as well as our out of region applicants. And those sort of fluctuate a little bit based based on the applicant um, data from the previous cycle. So we don't publish like what our academic cutoff is because it's not always the same and we don't want people trying to strive for something that may change, you know, come the next cycle. Um, but there is a, 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 a basic metric screen, which is relatively, you know, it's it's not through the roof. Most get through and then for our out-of-region applicants we actually have a um a little bit of a another screen that includes asking them to complete a statement that tells us how they meet our mission because we are a state funded institution we are a state school and so our, our goal is to educate our the residents but we recognize that there are sometimes applicants from outside of our region that can bring Um, some unique characteristic or experience or enhance our class in some way um, that can be of of great value, not just to our institution, but actually to our students and to our faculty. We're all, you know, sort of in a position of learning from each other in a a learning community. So we do accept out-of-region applicants, but the acceptance rate is very low. And that's partly because they go through that additional screening. So some students just choose not to complete the mission statement essay because it's another layer of you know, sort of things to do some. Um, and then we, we a, a human person actually reviews those and, and screens folks for meeting our, our mission. And then they fall into the regular process of um, being invited for, to complete a secondary and an interview. So, yeah, so there is a little bit of a screening process that happens before folks get invited for a secondary. So, sounds good. I mean, look,
0: in some, in some respects, it's, um, it's, it's more fair before you, do the work on the secondary and pay the fee for the secondary. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And we also, yeah, because we also want to ensure that folks are are prepared, you know, and and prepared to meet the expectations of our committee. So our committee, you know, once they're screening and interviewing them, have some expectations that folks have had a certain amount and level of preparation and um, come with that to, to the, part where they're, you know, sort of um, employing their energy and uh, brain power around it. So that's the the thinking behind that.
0: What is the job of the CASPER in the UW admissions oh, process?
1: Great question. For the first, so we've, we've had CASPER as part of our secondary requirements since 2000, since I came on board in 2018, um, where we've been collecting CASPER data, but for the first couple of years, we actually were doing it as a pilot and it had no Um, Bearing on admissions at all. Starting last season, we actually made the score available to our executive committee members who do um, sort of oversee the process. Once somebody's invited to interview, they they help with our screening and then they also oversee the interview. They're like the the head of the interview committee. We do a three-person panel interview, and only they have access to the anything that's a metric, so an MCAT, a grade, a GPA, or and now the CASPER. And so we made that available to them not with, and we didn't use it um at that stage for any sort of screening or cutoff. like you didn't have to have a certain casper score if you were within the whammy region but really as another piece of information for our committee members to sort of um, put into the context of the whole person so of course as most institutions we use the holistic review so admissions decisions aren't made based on one um, piece of your application or one metric or one rubric score, it's really about the whole package. And so we use that impressionistic sort of view of CASPER to help our um, executive committee members sort of think about applicants. So if everything else is the same, but somebody has a very low CASPER score, for instance, then we want to put that in the context of what, how did they do on their interview? How are they reflecting? Can you find, you know, sort of anything else that would support that? Additionally, you know, if they have a very high CASPER score. So, you know, and as you know, it's a situational judgment test. It sort of looks at things that, um, Perhaps are harder to 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 sort out in a brief thirty minute interview or a written application, such as you know professionalism, ethics, uh, communication skills. You know, sort of those
0: um, softer less, skills. It, yeah, softer skills, less less quantifiable skills.
1: Exactly. So, um, so that's how we use it in our process. We we did also implement it one other way in this past season, in that because we were. Um, we were anticipating we, we just have such a complicated process. And for all of these out of region applicants who apply to us, we did have to have another you know, sort of screening tool. So we did actually implement a screening cutoff for out of region applicants with the CASPER score. So if you didn't have above a certain CASPER score, then those applicants were screened out as well.
0: But other than out of state or out of whammy um, mm-hmm. applicants, the CASPER isn't really used until the final decision. Correct. Got it. Okay. All right. Now, we talked a little bit about bits and pieces, but can you give an overall view of the, of the process an application goes through from the moment they check that box on, on MCAS? So let's say from, from when they get the, you get the secondary, what, what happens?
1: So as I said, we receive primaries and then those go through sort of the metric screen and the mission statement and or the mission statement review that I talked about. Mm -hmm. Once a secondary is sent, um, then we track that waiting for it to return. In order for your secondary to be completed, we need that application, but we also need folks to have taken the CASPER. So you're not Your application doesn't go anywhere until we have your CASPER score, um, your MCAT score, uh, your letters of recommendation are part of that, and your residency verification if you're in any of the whammy states. Um, So once all of those things are met, then those applications go to our screening committee. So our screening committee is made up of our executive committee as well as some retired executive committee members who are trained to review applications and screen using a rubric. So every application is, I, I like to say, has eyeballs on it at least twice. So you're, in order to be invited for an interview, you need two positive screens. So some, two people to say yes. If you have uh, a person say yes and a person say no, then it goes to a third screen and that person can make the determination. If you're from one of the, a few of the whammy um, states that are Washington, if you get screened out, there they have an executive committee member that looks just to be sure. Um, so that can get you looked at again, <laughs> as well as if you're also in a whammy, some of the whammy states, if you're rejected before secondary, those actually get reviewed by the executive committee member too, just to be sure that we're not missing something because automatic screens can miss things. Sure. Screeners can miss things if they're not in the mindset of our regional sites who have specific needs, right? So we're trying to meet the needs of various regional sites. And so sometimes uh, our executive committee member might see something in an application that says, you know, this is worth learning more about this person because they may fit this particular need despite what other people think. So some applications get looked at by four people.
0: Yeah, before
1: before a decision is actually made. So we try to be sure that that all of the, you know, that it's looked at and looked at um, with, you know, a variety of different perspectives and and ensuring that um, we make the proper decision. So if you're screened in, then you are invited to interview. We hold interviews starting in October and they go all the way through the end of February. The Seattle site does interviews approximately four to six weeks total. So we do them in week-long blocks, starting two in October, November, December, and January. Um, starting in November, we start with our regional interviews with Spokane. And then in January and February, we do all of the other sites in week-long blocks also. So we're just interviewing constantly throughout you know, sort of the winter months. Each Whammy site does a round of interviews, and then they make their decisions and uh, for their cohort. So they're, we're, we accept folks in their cohort, essentially. For the Seattle site, it's a rolling sort of admissions process, and in Spokane, it's done over the course of two. Spokane's a little bit larger cohort in the region. They have 60 seats, so we end up doing um, multiple meetings, multiple weeks of interviews for them and multiple meetings. So it's kind of rolling in some regards and very cohort specific in um, more of our regional sites.
0: But it doesn't seem like, like there's this meme out there that if you aren't invited to interview or don't have an interview by Thanksgiving, you're toast. This is yeah. that's true.
1: true. That is not true for us. It never really has been, um, partly because we're just our, our process is um, fairly labor intensive on our committee part. and so it just takes them some time like I said, we got started a little bit late this year so our screening is a little bit late. And so no news isn't necessarily bad news at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Our secondary application deadline is actually December 1st. so it just passed yesterday. So we're still getting secondary applications. We didn't make it through our pre-screening. which us just call that, you know, uh, mission statement review of all of our out of region. So we're extending some uh, deadlines for some folks who are out of region because, and that's on us. Again, we're just a little bit behind. Um, but so for us, we try to tell people that it really isn't, a, even, if, even if you turned your application in all the way back in September and you still haven't heard, doesn't necessarily, we will definitely, notify every single applicant the status of their, of their application. We don't just say, oh, it's after, you know, this date we're done with you. If you didn't hear from us too bad. Um, we try to be sure that we're, you know, communicating frequently, even if it's still like, just like you're still under consideration. Give us sure. some, just give us a minute. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, sure. so yeah, so we still have interview spots available going forward, particularly obviously for the region, which we um, purposely schedule in January and February, but also for our Seattle and Spokane sites. So all sites are still under consideration.
0: So the, the, but realistically speaking, the last interview invitations would be sent out, I assume, in early February. Is that correct?
1: Uh, probably uh, January, January, mid-January. January. I think okay. which would I would suspect would be mid-January is our, we were sort of, I, you're, you prompted me with this question and we sort of, that forced us to look and we we're thinking probably if you, you should contact us if you haven't heard something by January 15th.
0: Okay. Folks, listeners, you hear that. You still can get an interview invitation. Yeah. All right. Okay. Good. Thank you for for the detail on that. That was great. Um, so, all right. So, so I kind of det- det- I think create a little bit of a detour in terms of the process. So, you now have the secondary. You have the customer. You have everything. It's been reviewed by four people. I guess decide whether to interview or not interview. You mm-hmm. Interview with a, a small percentage. I don't have the number off the top of my head, and I didn't write it down um, of those who've gone through this process. Is the interview make or break? Is it just another piece of information? Um, what happens then?
1: Yeah. Um, so we are we we strive to sort of interview about three people per seat. But you know, last year we had an unprecedented number of applicants, and we did a, a record number of interviews. So we interviewed way more people last year. We. We nearly I think um, over 800 and some for the just for the Seattle site and then similarly increased numbers for each of our regional sites so um, this year we anticipate we won't interview quite that many I think we'll be back down to our usual somewhere between three and four per per seat. Um, So that's kind of that. And so it works in terms of you get invited for the interview. It's a 30-minute, three-person panel interview now done via Zoom. It gets, you know, sort of you you get all set up um, from our side and it's pretty simple. You log into our portal that we have and your interview just happens in the same application portal that you use throughout the whole time. Um, And so from that interview, um, we do use a scoring rubric based on the interview Um, there each, the three people sort of score you independently and then they come together to have discussion and and make some sort of decision and then that information is taken back to the larger what's called executive committee which is our committee that makes the actual decision on every single application and those that information is presented and then the larger group makes a decision to accept or reject or to put on the alternate list um, for each cohort so we do that same process for each of them. that's done the same way for all of the different cohorts. So um, again, we use that holistic review sort of process. So one thing does not determine your entire acceptance or rejection from medical school. So that's why it's brought to the larger committees. So there's a uh, a numeric value that goes to your interview, but your executive committee member who interviews you actually presents that and is able to give the context and more of the detail around that in order to help um, the committee see, you know, sort of that, learn that story. Again, we try to train our, our committee to, you know, what is the person's story? Who are they? How will they contribute? What is the value that they bring? And how can we assist them in, in attaining the goals that they state that they're. You know that they are setting for themselves because it needs to fit for everybody right it needs to fit institutionally but it also needs we need to be able to meet the needs of the student so that's presented and then decisions are made in terms of of who's coming and who's not coming so i think that's does that help
0: very much very much thank you right. is, is uw open to updates from applicants and if so when
1: um, we do not accept updates. So that is because our our process is so complicated and so many people kind of touch the application throughout. We just are not able to accept any updates. So everything that you need to be in needs to be in by the deadlines. If it's part of your primary, it needs to have come in by October 15th. If it's part of your secondary by December 1st. And then that's it. We also don't accept thank you notes, which I think is helpful for people to know. Um, only because it just becomes a little bit of a, a logistical <laughs> issue of getting them to the right people and in a timely fashion. And um, it also is one more stressor on the applicants that we just, you know, we recognize that there's appreciation of our committee. We just don't feel like, because some people would do it and some people wouldn't. And does that have any influence? Who knows? But we just feel like that's probably so, so external information includes or additional information updates includes thank you notes. So, so save your, your postage and your pen and ink and also your email because we, we try to discourage that as well. Say your words of gratitude at the end of your interview, and that will suffice.
0: Okay, sounds good. Thank you for that. And even from waitlisted applicants, you do not want updates. Am I correct?
1: Correct. Because no other decision will, will happen. You, we do a ranked, we have a ranked alternate list mm-hmm. on our site, So we accept people in the order that they were ranked. And so it doesn't help to, to learn anything additionally. Okay. What are some of the
0: more common mistakes that you see applicants making
1: mm. in
0: approaching UW Secondary in particular?
1: So we, we've looked at this, and um, I think some of the more common themes that we see uh, from folks who, I mean, so there's a couple of points, right? where rejection happens so for folks who are screened out after you know somebody's looking at their application and um determined not to be invited for interview a lot of times what we're seeing is that there's not a um you know the 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 story that folks are telling does not convince the reader that they're aware or prepared enough to understand what they're getting into so that's it's that preparation piece around understanding of medicine It can also be just in terms of where they are in their exploration of what does it mean to sort of be in medical school and become a physician. So are they still in that exploration phase and that's how they're relating the information. So it's really about the reflection. We we emphasize this all the time when we're talking to prospective applicants and it's like, don't just tell us what you did but tell us what you learned, how you felt, what the meaning behind the experience was. It doesn't matter how many, you know, we try to help our committee understand the difference between um, quantitative and qualitative experiences. In terms of like, even if somebody had the opportunity to shadow somebody for 400 hours, if they haven't reflected on what that means and they just tell you all the cool things they got to see, they, you know, got to see suturing and, you know, sort of uh, cast removal and, you know, whatever it was that they saw, but they don't have any reflection on what does that mean to them, to the physician, to the patient what did the patient physician relationship look like how do you see yourself in you know sort of that setting what attributes do you have that you feel like will make you successful in that regard if you're not talking about that stuff in your application you're pretty much likely to get screened out in our process because we're really looking for people who are coming knowing what they're getting into not the obviously not the details we don't expect you to know the medicine side of it but really um what is it gonna be like for you? Do you recognize the challenges? Do you recognize the rewards? Have you asked doctors or people in healthcare about this? Or have you observed it at least? Um, so that's probably the biggest reason people get screened out you know, and not get invited for interview. Also just, if it, it does have to do with your experiences and how you sort of meet our mission, we're looking for service-minded individuals. So if you haven't spent a lot of time being of service to, to others in some capacity, um, we we worry that when you get into the position of being a medical student and or a physician and recognize how much of yourself you, you do give and, um, the, the requirement of service, of being of service. Um, but if you haven't done that before you get to medical school, that will be a hard transition. So we want you to have demonstrated that. And it can be anything. If we don't, we don't think that this is the recipe for a successful medical student, like do X, Y, Z, and you're in. It really is like, what is meaningful to you? Be intentional about your experiences in terms of what is your passion? What gets you up in the morning? What are you excited or interested in, or what devastates you? What makes you angry? And what do you want to see changed? And how have you approached that? Um, Have you turned your (laughs) anger into something positive? Exactly. Approach that somehow in your life and then tell us about it. Describe Mm -hmm. it to us. Tell us what that means. So all of those things, it really has to, those are the things we're looking for in terms of preparation. And then, you know, sort of if you're invited to interview and then you still you know, sort of aren't selected, the the variety of things, often it's, um, you know, some of it is, is, again, in your responses around how you think about things or how you maybe haven't thought about things yet. So a level of maturity, a level of understanding who you are as a person, who you are, um, what is your, you know, sort of story, your journey, how can you um, help us see how that fits into our institution and um, for you going forward, what do you see? So I think a lot of times that's what happens to folks and it's, it's hard. Interviews are high stakes. They're super anxiety provoking. We recognize that our committee is trained to try to see past, you know, Oh, wow. That person was super nervous. We could tell, which it's, it's a little bit harder to tell now in a virtual setting, how, but sometimes, you can't see their pressure. knees knocking, right? Right. You can't see them trembling. You can't, it's not as easy to see the red blotchiness that people sometimes get or um, those sorts of things. But it really then is more imperative that the content of your answers and the security with which you deliver those, because I think that's the other piece that um, I've heard back from some committee members and have seen myself folks trying to give us the answer they think we want to hear as opposed to having a genuine sort of response because you've thought of these things before and because you have the understanding and the preparedness and the knowledge. So again, being intentional and speaking your truth around whatever the question might be. Um, And even if it's a question you don't know, like we would rather hear you say, well, gosh, you know, I don't know that or I haven't experienced that, but here's what I might think about in terms of wanting to get to know more about that. Something like that. That's a mature answer as opposed to the, you know, our committee is pretty good about sniffing out the The baloney, the stuff that just doesn't really quite add up all the way. So, um, there we're looking for the that level of of being your your genuine self and bringing that to the table. That was a
0: fantastic answer. Thank you. Sometimes I like to tell applicants, you know, when you answer a question, you have to you also have to say why is this important enough to include (laughs) in your application? Yes, for sure. so you're, you're, I mean, you went into much more detail than my very general suggestion, but in terms of what it, you know, what motivated you to do X, what, what did you feel mm-hmm. about it? What were the results, not just the quantifiable results, but the exactly. impact on you as a human
1: being? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as we read applications, you just start to see that there is just this level of understanding of self that people can articulate um, and once you reach that maturity level or that experiential level, it just comes. And, and our committee is trained and we're good about being able to, you know, sort of read through those. And, and that's one of the things that makes or breaks both an application and an interview is just that, you know, sort of self-awareness and being able to articulate your, your genuine self.
0: All right. Now, if is an applicant out there, either somebody who determines they are not attending after applying, those are a re-applicant. Or a first-time applicant who wants to apply to UW, let's say they're in the whammy states. Let's let's leave Mm -hmm. aside the ones from outside for now. They're in the whammy states. They want to apply to UW. They're thinking ahead to either apply or reapply next cycle or Mm -hmm. the following cycle. What advice
1: would you have for them? Um, Read our website. (laughs) We try to be very transparent. We try to keep it up to date. Um, Everything that we want you to know and do and, you know, sort of think about is there. It's dense. It can sometimes, you know, you go down rabbit holes, but that's where I would start. I go back to be intentional about why you wanna to go to medical school. What is it that's driving you? Start there with your sort of own core values and beliefs and how you see yourself being a you know, sort of a contributor to medicine in some capacity. What is that? Identify that, know it, own it, be able to tell it to whomever asks you, not just in the interview situation, but really your friends should know who you're about and what you're about. Your family should know that. You really just need to have that baked into your fabric in terms of why why this makes sense to you. Because once you sort of own that, you're going to be more likely to be intentional about experiences that you're seeking, about ways that you're of service, about um, you know studying and learning, because uh, that's, that's an ongoing, never-ending component of medicine, so always be learning. But the things that you study, like don't take an organic chemistry class just to get into medical school. You don't take an organic chemistry class because you know that it's, I mean, partly you have to do that, but you also really understand the content because as doctors and physicians, we're expected to sort of know human humans not only on, you know, sort of the the psychosocial aspects of being human, but also on the physiologic and cellular level. That's the expectation of being a doctor. And if that is not something that sounds very fun or interesting to you, then maybe that's, it's not the right thing. So being intentional, like like understanding your motivation and then intentionally seeking opportunities and experiences, not because you're checking a box or ha- wanna have something to put on your CV or your um, med school application, but really because it makes sense. Because when you do it, when that approach happens and we meet those people, it's so fun because they light up and they can tell you their story and their passion and they make you excited about, The prospect of them being a physician and contributing to medicine, and we see that. So I think um, if you're in the early phases or you're reevaluating, you know, because you were unsuccessful in a past application cycle, think about those things. What, where's your passion? What motivates you? And then build upon that. There are some things, and like I said, our website will tell you, you need to do this and this and this, and you know have these prerequisites and, and so forth and so, so on. But at the same time, do it because it's something that you're excited about and that you're really interested in, not because eventually you wanna be a doctor and these are just the hoops you need to jump through to get there. Um, you might wanna check that if that's your approach, because mm-hmm. that may, that may make it much harder for you in the long run.
0: Wonderful advice. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Dr. Muskie, I think we're out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you again. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners learn more about UW School of Medicine?
1: Well, like I said, we (laughs) have a website that's very, um, has a lot of information. So you can go to uwmedicine.org and then click on the School of Medicine and there's an admissions page and it'll take you all the way through um, that journey. I would also say you can find us on um, Instagram and Facebook uh, if you just search for UW School of Medicine Admissions. So we try to post anything that we're updating about the current cycle. We try to keep folks updated um, on those social media sites as well.
0: Okay, great. We'll include links in the show notes at com slash 451 to the, the University of Washington School of Medicine, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to, to listeners. Listener, thank you too for joining us for this, our 451st episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please subscribe. Make sure you don't miss any future shows, be they with deans, admissions directors, professors, current students, test prep pros, or alumni doing great things. And finally, a quick reminder, don't miss the med school admissions quiz. Find out if you're really ready to apply and able to take advantage of the wonderful advice Dr. Muskie has given today, as well as competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at accepted.com slash today. Again, that URL is accepted.com slash This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.